Good morning, Crowd family. Happy, happy Sunday. I'm so glad you can join us today. Uh, we have great news, great news. Our leadership team met last week and we made the decision to begin in-person worship services starting Sunday, July 11th. That's Sunday, July 11th at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. I'm so excited about this and we will have more details about our services in the coming week. So I just want to thank you for your patience during this difficult season. Thank you for your faithful giving and also thank you for your prayers. Can't wait to see you all. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34 is today's text. We're now in part 22 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from uh, verses 2 through 16. And, and what Paul does, Paul compliments the Corinthian believers, but he's, he's setting them up for a correction he wants to give to them. And he begins by laying the theological groundwork. And so Paul begins by talking about headship. And he makes it clear that there's a definite order of headship. And he wants them to understand the lines of authority in relationships that God established. And so what Paul does, he describes three headship relationships, three headship relationships. You might remember this, verse 3, he says, now the King James Bible says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So notice there's a divine chain of command in play. There's a divine order, a perfect pattern for orderliness in family and church and also in society. And then he talks about head coverings. Now, I want you to remember this, okay, as we're talking about head coverings. Remember that there needs to be a distinction made between timeless theological principles and time-bound cultural practices. I'm going to say it again, okay, distinction made between timeless theological principles and time-bound cultural practices. For example, the wearing of head covering meant something specific in that time, in that culture, that it does not mean today. Just as short hair on a woman and long hair on a man meant something different at different times of history. Verse 4, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So who's the head of the man? Well, it's Jesus, right? Verse 3 says the head of every man is Christ. Verse 5, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Well, who's the head of the wife? Well, verse 3 says the husband is the head of the wife. And then it says this, it is just as though her head were shaved. So remember this, in that culture, uh, women wore head coverings as a public symbol that they were married, a symbol of being under the authority and the protection of another. It was, uh, it was a way of honoring their husband. So to not cover, to not cover her head, it's saying in that culture, again, in that culture, uh, I'm not under anyone's authority. I'm not submitted to anyone. Also in that culture, the only women with short hair or a shaved head were immoral women. Uh, temple prostitutes had short hair or a shaved head. So to avoid all suspicion of being a loose woman, Christian Women in Corinth were commanded commanded to be covered with a, a veil or a shawl. Then in verses 7 through 9, in this timeless principle, Paul draws from the story of creation 
that shows that God had a specific purpose in the order of creation. And you see, by design and position, man was created before the woman. He was given this position from the beginning. Uh, and in verses 11 and 12, Paul, what he does there, Paul maintains that just as the woman comes from man in creation, the man comes from woman in birth. Okay, every man has a mama, right? So they possess different roles in the order of headship. Uh, their differing roles is to be seen mutually, compatible, and equally edifying to one another. They're, they're linked together. That's what Paul's saying. They're linked together. They need each other. They're dependent on the other. Husband and wife are not independent, but interdependent. Then he talks about hairstyles. Look at verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Not a disgrace to God, but a disgrace to the man. Not a sin, but a disgrace to him. In both Jewish and Greek cultures, short hair was common. Therefore, it was a dishonor or disgrace, as Paul says, for a man to wear long hair because it was considered feminine or associated with male prostitution. You see, long hair in itself is not a sin. After all, friends, Paul apparently had long hair for a time in Corinth as part of a vow, the Nazarite vow, uh, in Acts 18.18. It states that, Acts 18.18. Verse 15, but that, if, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. So Paul's simply saying that in the Corinthian culture, again, in the Corinthian culture, Christian women should keep their hair long. Why? Because it was a symbol of their submission to God's order. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul maintained that there is no other pattern, no other pattern given except that which honors God-appointed headship. Got it? This now brings us to today's text. The title of the message today is In Remembrance. Say that, In Remembrance. Say that, come on, In Remembrance. Now, I want to remind you that chapters 11 through 14, Paul addresses specific problems of worship in the church. And here he's addressing or dealing with the issue of communion, of the Lord's Supper. Now, friends, before Jesus left, this earth, he left his church two ordinances, two ordinances. The first one was baptism. Write that down, say baptism. That's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, known as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It's an, baptism is an outward symbol, an outward symbol of the new life of Christ on the inside. It's a symbol, an outward symbol of the new life of Christ on the inside. The second ordinance is the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about that today. That's found in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. This also is a symbolic observance. Got, got it? A symbolic observance. Now, there are four basic views as to what the Lord's Supper represents. And the first view is the transubstantiation, transubstantiation view, and this view is that the bread and the wine literally change into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The recipient actually eats the Lord's body and drinks the Lord's 
blood because Jesus is literally being sacrificed in the Mass. And this is the Roman Catholic view. The second view is a consubstantiation, consubstantiation view. And this view is that the bread and wine actually contain the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but do not literally change. Christ is actually present within and under the elements. And according to this view, uh, the recipient receives the forgiveness of sins and the confirmation of their faith through the elements. This is the Lutheran view. The third view is a Reformed view, the Reformed view. And this view is that Jesus is not literally present in the elements, but there is the spiritual presence of Christ. The recipient receives grace through the partaking of the elements. And this is the Presbyterian and Reformed church view. The fourth view is the memorial view. The memorial view, and this view teaches that Jesus is not, get this now, Jesus is not present physically or spiritually in the elements, but that the Lord's Supper stands, listen now, the Lord's Supper stands as a symbolic reminder, a symbolic reminder of what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is our view here at Cry Out, and I believe it represents the truth of what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper. Now, back in chapter 10, you might remember this, back in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, Paul had already made mention of the Lord's Supper to the Corinthian believers. And in that context, uh, he was using the Lord's Supper as an illustration of the fact that all believers who partake become one body, one body in the partaking. Now, in today's text, Paul gives the Corinthian believers instructions regarding the proper observance of that supper in worship, okay, in worship. Now, you will notice as we go through the text, you will notice five times, five times in today's text, Paul speaks of the church coming together or gathering together or meeting together to partake in the Lord's Supper. You'll find that in verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 33, and verse 34. That being said, the church is not a building, the church is not a denomination, and the church is not an institution. The church is the body, listen now, the church is the body of Christ, the church is the body of gathered believers. The Lord's Supper, communion, we call it communion, is an act for the gathered church family. If you got it, say got it. Follow me here. In the church, listen now, in the church, when taking the Lord's Supper together, there should be a special sense of identity and of unity. Got it? Identity and of unity. Now, the word communion, uh, we could say it this way, is, is common unity. Communion, common unity. It could also be translated community. Okay? When we... Take communion. It involves a sharing, a koinonia. Say that. Koinonia, uh, an intimate spiritual communion, fellowship with Jesus. Got it? With Jesus and also with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Okay, it speaks of unity and identity. Three points from today's text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, if you're ready, say yes. Point number one is this. The desecration. Write that down. The desecration. The desecration. And we're going to look at verse 17. The desecration, verse 17, Paul writes, In the following directives, 
Okay, he says, I, this is what he says, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, there it is, the gatherings, your meetings do more harm than good. Wow, Paul is straight up, right? Paul is just straight up. And how, how sad, think about it, how sad is it that they're, that they're gathering together, they're gathering together, gatherings together actually did more harm than good. You see, the aspect of their worship, listen now, the, the, the aspect of their worship needed correction. And Paul's about to confront them and about to correct them in the way which they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Well, let's see what's uh, taking place that, that has Paul so, so troubled here, okay? Verse 18, look at verse 18. In the first place, Paul says, I hear that when you come together, there it is again, come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Say divisions. I want to stop there. In the Greek, the word divisions is schismata. 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 Schisms. It means to split, to tear, or rend apart. And this is the same word that Paul had used back in chapter 1, verse 10, where he exhorted them to have unity rather than divisions in the church. And, and sadly, these divisions became especially evident during their gathering together as a church for the Lord's Supper. Let's read on. Paul says, and to some extent, Paul says, I believe it. To some extent, I believe it. Now, Paul doesn't reveal where he had heard about the divisions, and it's possible that he had heard about the divisions from Chloe's people back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, or perhaps he heard about the divisions from Stephanus or Futonatus, uh, Fortunatus or uh, um, Achaicus in, in chapter 16, verse 17, chapter 16, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians, who had come to him from Corinth. Now, now though Paul didn't have all the details exactly. He did believe the report uh, since he had heard this from reliable people. Got it? Let's move on. Verse 19. No doubt, Paul says, there have to, no doubt there have to be differences. Okay? No doubt there have to be differences. The New American Standard Bible says factions. That's the word there, factions, among you to show which of you have God's approval. I'm going to read that again. you got to get to what Paul's saying here. No doubt there have to be differences or factions among you to show which of you, listen to what he says, which of you have God's, God's approval. Got it? So this verse proves that even divisions, even factions in a church have a purpose. You see, divisive people will never earn the approval or praise of God, but they do fulfill a purpose of God. Listen, God, stay with me here now, okay? God allows factions. You gotta get this. God allows factions so that over time, those who really belong to Him, those who really belong to Him, listen now, would be made evident. That those who are biblically, biblically correct might stand the test and be approved. Let me put it this way. Those who cause division, okay, those who cause division only serve to highlight those who are genuine believers. I'm going to say it again. Those who cause division only serve to highlight those who are genuine believers. Someone say amen. Verses 20 and verse 21. When you 
Come together. There's that word, those words again, that phrase, come together. It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. This is what Paul says. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Now, let me give you some background here, okay? The early church would gather together before communion, and they would have what they called an agape meal or a love feast. And it was, it was a fellowship meal, a fellowship meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. It was like a potluck. Coming together, they brought food. It was a potluck. It was an opportunity for fellowship and for sharing this. You got to get this now. And for sharing with those who were less privileged. The, the, the weekly agape feast was the only decent meal some of the poor believers, uh, less privileged or less fortunate believers uh, had uh, weekly. I mean, this is probably the only time they had a good meal. So before they would have communion, they would gather together, eat in fellowship, but the problem was that people were abusing what was done. So here, what Paul's saying, apparently what was happening was that the, the wealthy Corinthian believers would arrive early with their larger portions of fine food and wine and would gorge the food and end up getting drunk. And this explains... Uh, why Paul said in the text, another gets drunk. They ate most, if not all, of the food and drank all of the wine. They were acting selfishly. Okay, they were acting selfishly. So when the poor Corinthian believers arrived later, which the reason why they, perhaps why they arrived later was because they were working, uh, there was no food or drink or hardly any food or drink left over that would satisfy their hunger. And this explains why Paul said, one remains hungry. You see, the, the original idea of the agape meal, of the, the love feast, was sharing. It was for sharing. But somewhere down the line, the idea, the idea excuse me, had been, been lost. So since there was not enough food for the poor Corinthian believers, uh, they perhaps tried to satisfy their hunger, hunger pains by eating the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper as part of their regular meal. And by, and by doing so, they fail to distinguish. Got to get this now. And by doing so, they fail to distinguish the regular meal, the agape meal, from the Lord's Supper. So, follow me here. So, both the wealthy and the poor Corinthian believers were guilty of abusing the intended purpose of the Lord's Supper. Therefore, therefore Paul's solution was that the wealthy believers who arrived early were to wait were to wait for the late arrivers, speaking of the poor believers, and all were to eat together a regular meal, the agape meal, or love feast, and the Lord's Supper, or only the Lord's Supper. If you're with me, say yes. Verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So I want to stop there. Paul is simply, simply telling these wealthy believers, if you want to eat and drink selfishly, then do it at home. Do it at home. If that is all that you came together for was to party, just to party, then do it at home. Paul simply saying, if you're going to be indifferent, if you're going to be selfish, if you're going to be uncaring about your brothers and sisters in Christ and make the Lord's table a common meal, Paul says that you might as well just, just stay home. Just stay home. 
You see, friends, listen now, when, 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 when you're indifferent, when you're selfish, and when you're uncaring towards your brothers or sisters in Christ who are less fortunate than you are, then you're actually despising the church. That's what Paul is saying. You're despising the church. Let's read on. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. So it's, right, it's, it's, it's pretty evident that Paul is not happy with the Corinthian believers at this point. In fact, back in, in verse 17, Paul says, I have no praise for you, right? I have no praise for you. Now listen, it is possible to come to church and participate in activities. It is possible to come to church and participate in the ordinances. It is possible to come to church and sing hymns, pray, give, and serve. It is possible to come to church and listen to the Word of God. It is possible to do all of these things and still have a life that does not please God. To still have a life that will not earn His praise or his approval. You see, in the mind of God, and also in the mind of Paul, friends, the tragic reality of the Corinthian church was that they were, was that, that, that when they met together, it was not for the better. It was for the worst. There was so much selfishness and so much self-centeredness that when they left a worship service, they were not better for it. They were worse off. How sad is that? They're, listen, their selfish, self-centeredness conduct at the common meal disgraced their observance of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. They were, dis, listen, they were dis desecrating, they were defiling, dishonoring the Lord's table. There was a lack of unity in the church. And you see, they didn't honor one another properly, therefore, they didn't honor Christ. Instead of coming together, listen, instead of coming together, they were coming apart. Nofel Staten said this, If the Lord's Supper is a meal of unity, it is not the Lord's Supper if we partake of it in disunity and factions. We are kidding ourselves when we think that we can have differences and hatreds and jealousies and competitions with other members in the body and then partake of the Lord's Supper as some sort of tradition that makes everything okay. okay. You can't do that. You can't come together when there's divisions and there's separation and hatred and jealousies. You can't come together and partake of the Lord's Supper in the right way. Got it? So they were desecrating uh, the Lord's table. Number two is the declaration. Write it down. The declaration. Say that. The declaration. The desecration. Number two, the declaration. And here Paul shows them how to conduct the true Lord's Supper. He declares it here. Okay? Verses 23 all the way through verse 25. Stay with me. If you're still with me, say Amen. Verse 23, for I received, listen to what Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Paul didn't just make this up. Okay? He, he, he didn't just make this up. He received it from God. It came to him from God either personally 
or through the other apostles. So he says, I received, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And he says this, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, say bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, say body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Love that. Verse 25. In the same way, in the same way, after supper he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Did you get that? Now, now, now I want to say this. You got to get this now, okay? Bread and wine. Bread and wine were two common items that were used at practically every meal in the Jewish culture. They're in that whole culture there. But Jesus gave them an amazing, wonderful new meaning. So that from now on, they would serve as memorials, memorials of his death. Now, now listen. Every detail, got to get this, every detail of the Passover, okay, of the Passover pointed to that great day of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, right? I'm going to say it again. Every detail of the Passover pointed to that great day of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, right? We know that, right? Now, what Jesus does, and I love this, is he redirects the details to himself and to his deliverance of the world from sin. Now, follow me here. Bread represents the life of Christ. Bread represents it or represented the life of of Christ, okay? So so listen, follow me here. He was given, when he was born, came here, born of a virgin, he was given that body in where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem is called, you know what it's called? It's called the house of bread. Got it? In his life, as Jesus was on this earth, he said, I am the what? The bread of, of life. So he bore our sins in that body. He triumphed from the grave, bringing that body back to life. And now, listen now, get this now. And now he lives in that glorified body at the right hand of the Father. He says, take, eat, this is my body. So bread represented the life of Christ. Blood represented his payment for our sins. His payment for our sins. He gave his blood. He gave his blood, not just his body. He gave his blood, which is the only way sin could ever be paid for and sinners could ever be saved. The text says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, well, follow me here, friends. The old covenant, okay, the old covenant was ratified with the blood of animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices. The new covenant was ratified by his blood. His blood did what the animal's blood couldn't do. Jesus takes away sin and not just covers over it. Got it? Got it? So here's the lesson. The lesson is this. Don't forget what Jesus did for us. Don't forget what Jesus did for us. Paul says, do this, right? Referring to the words of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Can't hear you. If you're saved, say amen. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay. Paul, okay. Jesus didn't say, don't, don't, don't quote this. Don't think this. Don't feel this. But do this. Do this in remembrance of 
me, Jesus says. Okay, the bread and the blood should bring this. In other words, the bread and the blood should bring to mind, to mind his suffering and pain for us. Got it? So when we, we take of the elements of the bread and the cup, the bread and the cup, the juice, right? The juice and, and the bread. We take of the elements that we would what, what would come to mind is, is his suffering and pain for you and I. He gave of his body and he and he gave of his blood so that you and I, you and I, listen now, would be saved. How awesome is that? That his blood covers all of our sins, that we should keep that fresh in our minds. Don't forget what Jesus did for us. Verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or declare the Lord's death until he comes. For whenever you eat this bread, got it, and drink this cup, you proclaim, declare the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the lesson. You ready? Here's the lesson. Share the gospel until he comes. Share the gospel until he comes. Now listen, as we, we're waiting for him to come back, right? But we need to wait actively. We don't wait passively. We wait actively. How do you wait actively? I'll tell you how. You wait actively by sharing the gospel to others until he comes. Okay, you keep sharing that gospel. You keep sharing that gospel. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, declare the Lord's death until he comes. We ought to be busy, right? Busy about, about sharing the gospel. Share the gospel until he comes. Now, while the Lord's Supper does look back at what Jesus did on the cross, speaking of his death, it also looks forward, love that, forward to the coming of Jesus, which means he's alive. Got it? He's alive. In Matthew 26, 29, write that down. Matthew chapter 26, 29. Jesus, after giving the bread and the cup, Jesus spoke of his longing expectation for the day when he would, listen, I'll take communion with his people in heaven, which is the ultimate Lord's Supper. And he says this, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This could be speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Got it? So listen. So every time we take the elements, the, the cup and the bread, we are to remember that he died. Not only that he died, okay, but that he also lives. Because he lives, one day soon, he's coming back to take us to be with him forever. How awesome is that? I love that. First, excuse me, First Thessalonians, write this down. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. Paul writes this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, gosh, I love this, will rise first. After that, verse 17, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. God's awesome. And so, listen to what he says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Forever. That's awesome. That's awesome. The desecration, the declaration, number three is the direction. 
Write that down, the direction. The direction. Verse 27. Therefore, therefore, after all he said, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So, so in context, every, everything's got to be in context, right? In context, this refers to the Corinthians who were partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. The Corinthians, we know this, right? Because we already read it earlier in the text. The Corinthians were coming to the table of the Lord with a flippant, selfish, divisive, superficial attitude, behavior. There was strife, there was selfishness, there was drunkenness, there was divisions and, and, and factions and, and lack of forgiveness. They, and they failed to realize the significance of the elements. Now, now that being said, what are some ways that we, as Christians, what are some ways that we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? Hmm? Well, first of all, by thinking about everything but Christ. That's one way we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, by, by thinking about everything but Christ. And, and let's be honest here, instead of thinking and focusing on Christ, at times when we take communion, okay, we're thinking about what we're, we're going to eat after church, or anxious to get home to watch the football or basketball game, or watching it on the cell phones, our cell phones, while in service, or just being on our cell phones or looking to see what other people are wearing, or, or taking communion without searching our own hearts for secret sins and confessing them to God. Listen, church, we partake in an unworthy manner if we're not thinking of the Savior and His work, but simply going through a ritualistic service with no reality. In other words, going through the motions without any devotion to the Lord and his table. Verses 28 through 30. If you're still with me, say yes. A man ought to examine, there's that word again, examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That means died. Hey, this is serious business, right? I mean, this is serious business. In fact, Paul says it's deadly serious business. Okay, people were dying. They were dying in the early church because they took the Lord's Supper casually in an unworthy manner. It's not something to mess around with. Why is this such a big deal? I mean, why is it such a big deal? I'll tell you why, because the table of the Lord, the breaking, excuse me, the bread in the cup, the bread in the cup represents what God sent his son to do for you and I. And that's why God is totally serious about it. Serious stuff. Lesson, here's a lesson. Are you ready? The lesson is this, examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. Listen now, get this now, get this. Before, before we spend time at the Lord's table, we should first spend time at the Lord's altar. I'm going to say it again. Before we spend time at the Lord's table, we should first spend time at the Lord's altar. At the Lord's altar before Him, confessing our sins, searching our hearts, 
confessing our sin of, uh, of unforgiveness, confess sin of bitterness and resentment. Perhaps you have something against somebody. I don't know. That we would come to the altar of God before we take up the elements and ask God to cleanse us to be right. Friends, we should test ourselves to show that we're properly in line, properly in line for the observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Come on, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, we should never, say, say never, partake of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion, without properly examining ourselves. Ourselves. Lord, if there's any sin in my life, any unconfessed sin, I, I ask you, Lord, to forgive me of it. Reveal it to me that I might repent of it. Verses 31 and 32. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. In other words, what Paul's saying is judge what you do and change your actions lest you find yourself being judged by God. In other words, if, if, if we face and deal with our sins completely, honestly, immediately, and confess them before God, God will not chasten us. He will not discipline us. Got it? Now, in wrapping up his exhortation to the Corinthians, Paul tells them how they should act act during their agape meal, their love feast, and the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. Got it? Verse 33. So then, so then, my brothers, listen to what he says. When you come together, there's that word again, the phrase again, those words again. When you come together to eat, wait, love that, say wait, wait for each other. Remember what he said previously in the text, the beginning of the text, right? How they were coming in and eating and not waiting for each other. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. They should wait until everyone has had ample time to get to the meeting before beginning to eat. So here's the lesson. Wait for each other. Here's the lesson. Are you ready? Very simple here. Think of others. That's the lesson. Think of of others. Friends, listen, if you're saved, listen now, loving others is putting others ahead of ourselves. Got it? Listen, when we gather together as a body of Christ, when we come together as a church, our focus, our mindset shouldn't be, what can I get out of service? Or, or what's in it for me? No, 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 no. It should be, what can I do to contribute, listen now, to contribute to the body of Christ. What can I do? You got to get this. What can I do that will bless, that will bless another brother or sister in Christ? We must be selflessly, selflessly concerned about their needs and concerns, even above our own. We must learn to look beyond ourselves. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, say amen. Listen, we must always, say always, always, always love and cherish our brothers and sisters in Christ and look at the big picture of God's kingdom and all of our involvement with the church. Got it? The church. Verse 34, here we go. Paul says, if anyone is hungry, he should eat 
at home. Paul's saying, hey, don't pig out at the church common meal because it might mean someone else doesn't get enough to eat. And Paul's saying, if you're that hungry, okay, eat at home. Let's read on so that when you meet together, there's that phrase again, it may not result in judgment. I want to stop there. So that, well, let's read. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So I want to stop there. If they, if they didn't follow Paul's advice, their meeting was nothing more than an opportunity for them to suffer God's judgment upon them, which will result in his disciplining of them. That's what Paul's saying. Let's read on. Here we are, very end of verse 34. And when I come, he says, I will give you further directions. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Paul tells him that he has other directions or, or, or instructions to pass on to them regarding their celebrating of the Lord's table, supper, and worship, but he will wait until he comes to tell those things to them. Amen? So as we wrap this up, just uh, there are many takeaways, but just, just one takeaway here. It kind of sums up what we learned today. And this is the takeaway. Christian worship, authentic Christian worship calls us to honor Christ and to honor one another in the Lord's Supper. Got it? Christian worship, authentic Christian worship calls us to honor Christ, honor Christ and one another in the Lord's Supper. Now remember, communion is common unity. Common unity, community. So when we take communion, it involves, remember this, it involves a sharing, a koinonia, intimate spiritual communion, fellowship with Jesus, and also with our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the body of Christ. When we do that, we are honoring Christ and we are honoring one another. If you got it, say got it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are so, so blessed that you gave your best, your one and only Son who, who gave his body, his, his blood, his life, that we would be saved. And Father, might we never forget the importance and, and the significance, Lord, of communion, that our focus would be on Christ in remembrance of what he did for us and, and waiting patiently and actively for his return. As I echo the words that Paul said, and Lord, as he repeated what you said, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone say amen. Hey, listen, perhaps there's someone who's listening online right now and uh, you, had, you felt a tug at your heart and if that's what you felt, that's the Holy Spirit uh, calling you to himself. And so if that's you, you want to give your life to Jesus and be saved and follow him, then I want you to close, bow your head and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. Okay, would you do that? But Jesus, I invite you to come into my life Lord, and to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. Lord, I, I call you, Lord, today to come in, Lord, to, to save my life. I, I believe 
uh, I confess with my mouth that, that you are Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. From this day forth, I will serve you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Now, if you said that prayer, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's C-R-Y-Y. That's contact at cryout.org. We would love to hear from you. So I hope you enjoyed the message and... Just I pray that you have a wonderful, wonderful day and a wonderful week. And don't forget, July 11th, we're going to regather as a church, right, in person. Excited about that. I hope you are as well. Love you. God bless you. And take care.